I'm going to title this presentation just simply The Lowly and the Wise. The Lowly and the Wise. Let me share my introduction with you this way. I received an email from headquarters. Our beloved brother Tenney refers to it as the Vatican. And, uh, but our headquarters in St. Louis and uh, received an email from them several months ago, and they said, I'm writing today to ask you if you'd be willing to write a lesson for the discipleship project, the new line of curriculum that's going to be offered by the Pentecostal Publishing House. As churches are restructuring their service schedules and changing the way they do church, I'm reading verbatim uh, this email from Brother McClintock at headquarters. He said, as churches are changing their service schedules and changing the way they do church, our goal is to provide a curriculum option beyond the classic Word of Flame curriculum for resourcing churches. The discipleship project has been structured so that all age levels are studying the same topic each week. He goes on to say that each quarter contains three standalone month-long series on topics that will cover basic areas of theology and general Bible information. In addition, we will offer a standalone lesson to be used during the 13th week of each quarter, and this is the lesson that we are asking you to write for us. So I want to share with you this morning, kind of a trial thing, at least on my part, the lesson that uh, I have written for this curriculum for the United Pentecostal Church. I feel very honored. Uh, that they would ask me to do that. Uh, I'm titling it different than I titled it for them, but I'll talk to you this morning just simply about the lowly and the wise. <clears throat> Worshiping God is about leaving some things behind and then bringing some things with you. Worshiping God or the worship of God is about leaving some things behind and bringing some things to him. Our scripture focus would be found in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 18, and Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And while we all know today that there are a number of people who were a part as participants in the birth of Christ, our focus today will be on the very well-known shepherds and wise men. The shepherds would be the lowly. The wise men would be the wise. The shepherds for the basis of this presentation today will represent the Jewish people, while the wise men will represent Gentile people. And of course, Gentiles is everyone that's not a Jew. So it's important to realize that Jesus came to the Jewish people as their Messiah, and he was to be loved and worshiped by them. That was the plan. And there are many prophecies in the Old Testament that foretell the birth of Christ, but I will share today with you too. Isaiah prophesied the virgin birth of Jesus in Isaiah 7:14. The prophet Isaiah addresses the house of David, or the Jewish people, meaning the family and descendants of King David, and speaks of a virgin giving birth to the child. Isaiah says that this will be a sign from God. He also says that the child would be referred to as Emmanuel, 
which of course being interpreted is God with us. The New Testament books of Matthew and Luke record details involving the birth of Christ, who was born about 700 years after the time of Isaiah, saying that he was born of a virgin named Mary and is the Son of God. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, there's a prophecy that reveals that Bethlehem would be the birthplace of the Messiah. It eliminates all other cities and towns throughout the world as a place in which the Messiah could be born. It narrows the possibilities to one tiny village just south of Jerusalem. So all of us here today know and understand the Christmas story. But there's a few things that I want to lift out of it today to share with you. I oftentimes think of the shepherds keeping their flocks, the Bible said, by night. And all of a sudden, without notice and without prior warning, the heavens lit up to use proverbial uh, terminology like the 4th of July night. It lit up, the skies was filled with angels. What a glorious night that had to have been for them. So while they were watching their flocks, an angel appeared to them and told them of the birth of Christ. Their response was, let us now go. Not wait, not prepare, not think about it. But we're going to go and see this site, and we're leaving now. This is what's interesting to me about that. Of course, shepherds back in that time, and even to a great degree, even in our modern-day culture, was probably one of the lowest occupations a person could have. Bottom line, if you were a shepherd, it's probably because you didn't have a whole lot of gifting to do anything else. They were not paid a lot of money, and it was certainly not a get-rich-quick scheme. But they did understand this. If you were hired to be a shepherd, you never left that flock. You were their only defense because sheep have no ability to defend themselves. That's why they have a shepherd. But in research and study of this story, it comes across to me and it appears to me that they were so overwhelmed by what they saw in the sky that night that they abandoned the occupation in which they were hired to do. One that you could not leave. Understand with me this morning, when Jesus called his disciples, primarily Peter and Andrew and the other fishermen, it was okay for them to leave their occupation behind as far as what they were caring for was concerned. There were always going to be fish in the sea. But for shepherds to leave their flocks, to leave them unattended, to leave them defenseless was totally out of character for the shepherds. So they said that they were so excited about the announcement of the birth of Christ that they left their flocks behind so they could go worship. They sacrificed 
not only their flocks, but they also sacrificed their reputation as a shepherd, that they would not be hired anywhere else because they were not dependable. Because you never knew with these guys that they may run around saying, we saw an angel in the sky, and he told us about the birth of the Messiah. And so we left our flocks behind, and people are like, yeah, right. You're just not a very dependable, nor are you an accountable shepherd. You never leave your flocks. But so great was what they saw in the sky that night, they could not help themselves. Forget about the sheep. We'll leave the sheep to their own devices and hope they survive. But there's something going on somewhere else, and I've got to go see about it. Meanwhile, meanwhile, a star appears in the heavens to some wise men, probably astrologers. We don't know for sure. We don't know how many, and we don't know exactly where they came from. All we know is that there were some wise men that said they saw a star. I've often wondered if the star they saw was the angel that appeared to the shepherds. That can be debated for another time. But we don't know where they came from, but we do know that they came from a long way. And it took them a long time to make that journey. You'll notice very carefully according to the Word of God. They came to the house of Mary and Joseph and not the manger, as it's always depicted in our culture. It is believed that Jesus was about two years old because Herod had all the male babies killed, two years old and younger, hoping that Jesus would be among them. The wise men brought with them, the Bible said, treasures of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So while the shepherds left their flocks behind to go worship Jesus, the wise men traveled a long ways and brought treasures with them when they came to worship Jesus. So my point today is simply this. Sometimes the worship of God calls for us to leave some things behind. But on the other hand, the worship of God calls for us to bring something with us. One came empty-handed. The others came with their hands full of treasure. So when you want to come and worship Jesus, especially during this Christmas season, what is worship? Worship means adoration, a feeling of profound love and admiration. To love without question or to excess, to show devotion. Our love for God should be manifested in our worship of Him. There is nothing more fulfilling than being in the presence of God. And someone said, Amen. It's fulfilling to be in the presence of God and then to worship Him with all of your heart. Worship begins with a knowledge, a revelation of who you are worshiping. This knowledge and revelation must come from the Word of God. The night that the angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds was a night of revelation and understanding from them. No doubt was that whatever the shepherds had learned prior to that night about God was just has just been eclipsed 
by the glory of God that was shining around them. Listen to pastor today. Tradition and past experience must give way to biblical truth and greater revelation. Everybody said amen. I'm as guilty, I suppose, as anyone else of thinking about that great camp meeting service, of thinking about that great revival that I was a part of as a child, of thinking about moments of church growth and harvest and moments of great moves of God. But when there is a fresh experience with God waiting on us, we have to be willing to let go of the past and move in the direction that God was going to have us move in. I'm sure those shepherds had their moments of devotion and worship, but nothing happened to them ever in their life like as did that night when the heavens was lit up with the angelic host and they began to sing peace and goodwill to all men. You forget about what happened as a child. You forget about what happened when you were a young adult and you begin to pursue that new and fresh hope of revelation from God. I would to God that Grace Church could get its head around this principle. If God has, even though it may be an infant child in a manger, it eclipses everything we've ever known and everything we've ever experienced in God before. I hear people say often, I remember when I was saved. And that could be for some people 50 plus years ago, 30 plus years ago, however long ago it was. And those are great moments. But I'll have you understand that the moment you were born again did not end your relationship with God nor your pursuit of him. The new birth experience is the beginning of it. And we have to be open to those invitations to mangers. Oh, but Brother Murphy, I'm not giving up that night that I was born again over a little manger worship setting. But you don't know who's in that manger, and you don't know what he's got waiting on you when you get there. You don't know what's going to happen to you when you get there. We've got to be willing to let go of tradition and past experience and give way to biblical truths and greater revelation and understanding. True biblical worship so satisfies our total personality that we don't have to shop around for man-made substitutes. Now, you know, I agree that a manger can't really compete with a mall. A manger can't really compete with a temple. It can't compete with, you know, all the, the edifices and what have you that we've seen through our lives. It's not about where, and it's not about what. It's about who. And we have to understand that we have to get our head around the who. And if you can get your head around the who, it's a life-changing experience. If it's not life-changing, then you don't have your head around the who. Hey, don't sit there and look at me like, you know, cow looking at a new gate. But it's nonetheless true. The baby in the manger even eclipsed the angelic host in the sky. William Temple made this clear in his masterful definition of worship. He said, for worship is a submission of all of our nature to God. It's a submission 
of all of our nature to God. So you don't worship God with a part of you that wants to and then live like the devil with the other part of you that wants to do that. Worship is a submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose, and all of this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless motion of which our nature is capable, and therefore the chief remedy for that self-centeredness, which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. The shepherds were being called or summoned to a higher place of worship and adoration than they had ever been before. They were so impacted by the multitude of heavenly hosts that they agreed to leave their flocks to go worship. If you want to come to Jesus and become all he wants you to be, you may have to leave some things behind. Even those things that you may feel are the most important things of your life. Let me introduce you to this principle in the Word of God. The principle of leaving things behind is introduced to us in the Old Testament. When a man desires to be married, he must leave his mother behind. That's been the source of his life, all of his life. But the Bible said he shall leave his mother. If a woman wants to be married, she has to leave her home. If you're not old enough and you're not making enough money to do that, then don't get married. Fellas, if you ain't old enough to leave your mama, and girls, you ain't old enough to leave home, don't get married. And if you can't support yourself, this isn't in the lesson, by the way. This is just pastor talking here. If you can't support yourself, don't get married. As a matter of fact, if you want to leave home even before you're married, if you're not making enough money to pay your tithes, you need to stay at home. You don't sacrifice your tithing so you can show everybody you're a big boy. Everybody said amen. amen. Some of you young folks that are, you know, I work a job, but I can't afford to pay tithes. I want to say something else to our youth group here this morning. If you're dating someone that's not tithing, you need to break off with them right now. They got their priorities mixed up real bad. And I can show you the pattern of people's lives who never pay their tithes. I can show you how they end up. We'll pick up an extra offering in a little while for that. <clears throat> There's a principle in the Bible about leaving things behind. When... when God called Abram, when God called Abram, the first requirement was leave Ur of the Chaldees. If you can't leave some things behind, then the call of God will never come to fruition in your life. 
You cannot cling to some things and fulfill the call of God in your life. You can't do it. I wrote in my book several years ago to preachers feeling a call of God on their life. If you're married to a woman that can't leave her mama so you can go into ministry, you'll never go into ministry. And don't do it. <clears throat> I don't know why I just felt compelled to elaborate on that point. Sometimes God will call us to leave some things behind as a form of worship. Not necessarily that it's because it's a sin, but it's a form of worship to show our love and devotion to him. One of the Ten Commandments tells us in Exodus chapter 20, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, none, period. God should always be the first in our lives. And of course, other gods can be job, success, beauty, money, lust, pride, whatever you want to put in that blank. In Matthew chapter 19, the story is told of one who came to Jesus. He was young and he was rich. He even referred to Jesus as good master. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, obey the commandments. He said, I do that. Jesus said, okay, go home and sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and come follow me. And the Bible said the rich young ruler was grieved in his heart, and he couldn't do it. He could not embrace the leave some things behind mentality. There's people here today. You can't serve God the way you want to serve God because there's things in the world you can't leave behind. You can't help yourself. You say you want to, but you can't. Early on in Genesis, we're introduced to the principle of leaving things behind. And then when Jesus is born, we're introduced to the principle again with the shepherds. They left everything, man. They sacrificed their reputation, their job, their paycheck, everything to follow after the manger. The shepherds being poor and lowly, they had nothing to bring as the wise men did. They didn't have anything to bring, but they did have some things to leave behind. And I love the principle of, of, of both of these. The shepherds, as a type of the Jewish people, realized that their path had not been on what was leading them to growth and fulfillment in their relationship with God. But that night, everything changed. It changed with fresh and new revelation. Jesus had been born, and the shepherds were willing to leave everything behind just to worship, not follow. Jesus didn't call them to follow me. And all the angels said, if you'll go to Bethlehem, you'll find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. That's all they said. But so compelling was the moment. They left everything behind, not to follow, but to worship. One time. Y'all got that? It's, a, it's a powerful. It's it's a sledgehammer hitting us all in the head right now, ain't it? If worship, if we can encapsulate that kind of call to worship, then following Jesus isn't a problem. But when you try to follow him without total submission and worship, you're going to struggle. 
So the shepherds had been instructed by the Old Testament to love and worship God in the book of Deuteronomy. He said, Moses instructed them, I shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and might. They were tempted on many occasions, the Jewish people were in the Old Testament, to worship idols and to sin against God. They would turn their back on God and leave him behind. When they would, then they would turn back to God. They were oftentimes too poor because of their idolatry and their backsliding to bring anything to Jesus. But he was satisfied with their departure from idolatry. God was satisfied in their worship when they left behind sin, when they left behind temptation, when they left behind things that were not pleasing to God. So in that case, they didn't have to bring anything. God was satisfied with what they departed from. See, you know, I'm, I'm trying to preach a lesson that should be being taught, but Oftentimes, we want to bring God with us things to God that he don't want. We talked about this the past two Wednesday nights. We want to bring stuff to God that he doesn't want. So God, here's, here's my pride, or God, here's my worldliness. Accept me as I am. He don't want that. So the shepherds were not guilty of coming empty-handed. It's not that they didn't care and they, were, they had no thought or, or kindness towards the Messiah. It's what they were leaving behind that was important. I hope you all understand the point. What would it have been like to have received an angelic invitation to be the first of the human race to visit God manifest in flesh and have nothing to bring, to arrive empty-handed? All of that was about to change. And it's interesting to me in this one single story, God teaches the concept and the principle of leaving worldliness behind, other priorities behind, leaving all that behind. And it's okay in that case to arrive empty-handed. But a new precedent was about to be established. There were some wise men that were on their way, but they were not coming empty-handed. They were Gentiles, and they were going to show the New Testament worshiper that there's more to worship than leaving things behind. When you come to worship, you can bring gifts that tell Jesus you know who he is and that you're giving him the worship that he is worthy of. You're, if you bring things to him, you bring things that's relevant to him and things that he'll receive. I mentioned last Sunday after our Christmas presentation, wish we could have done it again this morning with all the children, with the praise team, everybody. It was incredible. But I made the comment last Sunday, and I made it Wednesday night, that I hope God liked it. I hope God received it. I hope it was a gift appropriate to him. I hope what's going on here today has been a gift appropriate to him. The wise men did not bring Jesus, the baby Jesus, things of their lifestyle. They didn't bring Jesus maps of the sky and glorified telescopes and books on how they learn what they learn. They didn't bring him that. They brought him things that was relevant to him. I have been guilty of giving people gifts, primarily Sister Murphy, 
things that she didn't want, but I did. So a good way of, for me to get it was to give it to her. And by default, at least half of it would be mine, according to the state of Louisiana. I learned a lesson back in them days, and I've never done that again. And so have I with God. I want to bring to God what's relevant to him. Of the gospel writers, Matthew's the only one who mentions wise men, and I find that interesting. Mark and John make no comment whatsoever about the birth of Christ. While Luke writes the most about the events surrounding his birth, but he leaves out the wise men. Matthew's single brief passage has sparked a great deal of imaginative speculation over the centuries and has raised a lot of questions. The Bible nowhere states how many wise men came and visited Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. Although Matthew mentions three types of gifts that they presented, there might have been two, three, or more of them. Some of them even thought uh, other people have thought there's as many as 12 wise men, but there was only three gifts. So whether it was two wise men or 20, there was only three gifts. And all three were incredibly relevant to Christ. You know, one of the most evocative or haunting images from any Christmas scene must be that of the wise men attending Jesus' birth and that star hovering over the stable where he was born. But so few people actually know what the Bible really says about this event or what actually means, uh, what it means for us today. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, we read this. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east of Jerusalem. It's so out of character to me. Why were they even summoned? What part did they have in this? The wise men have always seemed to be odd, and I've, I've, I've actually taught and preached about it for years. They're an odd part of the story. The actual journey of these wise men could have easily taken a long time. It would appear from Matthew chapter 2, verse 7, that the star which the wise men had seen had appeared at the moment of Jesus' birth. But the wise men arrived after he was born. If they saw the star at the moment of Jesus' birth, then it would have taken them up to two years to get to where Jesus was. So whatever that star was, Jesus left it hanging there for two years. We should note that King Herod wanted to know the exact time the star had appeared, presumably, so he could pinpoint the exact moment of Jesus' birth. He later proceeded, as I mentioned a little while ago, to have all the boy babies killed who were two years old and under. This would indicate that Jesus had been born up to two years previously. So the wise men did not arrive at the same time as the shepherds. They didn't arrive at the same time as the shepherds. But their relevance was just as important. They were two years late. The Jews had two years to embrace this infant. I understand. I say I understand. I try to understand that Israel was thrown into mass tumult. When Herod had all the babies killed, two male babies two years old and younger. And somehow or another, the focus of the Jewish people became the death of their male baby more than the birth of the Christ. And somehow Jesus 
and his birth was forgotten about until the arrival of the wise men. It reminded Israel again. I find it interesting that apparently these wise men had the rank politically. Whoever they were, they had enough rank to earn and merit an audience with King Herod. And so Israel had to be forced again to acknowledge the birth of the Christ. Let me tell you something else that's real peculiar to me about this story. Is that King Herod wasn't a Jew. He was the king over the Jewish people, but he wasn't a Jew. He was an Edomite. He was of the seed of Esau, who hated the Jewish people. He was appointed by the Roman government to be the king of Israel. It's interesting to me that the gifts that were possessed and brought by the wise men were not for a Gentile Edomite king. When the wise men came to King Herod, they brought him nothing. As far as they were concerned, he was not the king. All they needed from him was to know where a baby had been born some two years prior. I don't know why they thought King Herod would keep up with that kind of information. I would have gone to the local clinic or to the local hospital for some records to find out where he was born. But the wise men went to Herod, and I find that interesting. To me, it was God winking at foolishness, if you will. First of all, this man is a fake. He's not a king. He's not the king of Israel. He's a Gentile. Even worse than that, he's an Edomite, and he hates the Jewish people, and he loves this Roman regime. So God brought to his palace a group of men out of nowhere from a place we don't even know. They brought him nothing and asked, where is he that has been born king of the Jews? Oh, my. So as we begin to see Jesus more and more clearly, we realize that we have to leave or turn away from things that we bow to or pay homage to. Jesus should be, only, should be the only king in our life, and the wise men made that clear. The Bible said in Matthew chapter 2, when they were coming to the house, not the manger, the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These gifts had further significance by reflecting on the character of life of Jesus. It's gifts of worship that are, rel that are relevant to God, not the wise men. No one knows why they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. No one knows how they picked that. How do you go to the mall? And one says, I want to get some gold for him. And the other says, I want to get frankincense and the other myrrh. Gold was a type of his royalty. He was the king of the Jews. As a matter of fact, he was and is the king of kings. All of the wise men recognize this. They completely bypassed King Herod. They brought him nothing and gave their complete allegiance to Jesus. 
They brought him frankincense, which was an aromatic or an incense. It was aroma. It was a type of his divinity. They brought him gifts. He was the priest that would offer himself as a sacrifice. He was God in flesh, thereby making him qualified to offer himself as a sacrifice. It is impossible to know how the wise men came to bring him frankincense other than the Holy Ghost revealing it to them. But they brought him gold, a type of his royalty. They brought him frankincense, a type of his divinity. But here's what's interesting to me of the three gifts. Among their treasures was myrrh. It is literally prophesying to Joseph and Mary the death and burial of Christ. Myrrh was a perfume used for embalming a dead body. Myrrh was a type of his suffering, our humanity. What a strange baby gift. Kayla, if I may, it would be almost like when Lewis was born, that somebody would bring to you a gift card from the local florist and say, here's $500 for his casket spray when he dies. Think of it in that context. How about that, Jonathan Adams, with your three boys? When they were born, somebody would bring them a gift card from a florist or a local funeral home and say, here, put this towards his casket. Somehow, the gift to you and I would be way out of line and way too inappropriate. But once again, to God, from man, worship that signifies his death, his sacrifice to God is still worship. Because it's a full acknowledgement of who he is and his purpose. To bring him myrrh is to say that you're God and one day you'll die for my sin and redeem my fallen soul. What a gift. And when you do, Jesus, you know, I've oftentimes wished the Bible would have expounded more on the wise men, especially around the time of crucifixion. Wouldn't it have been a wonderful thing if those wise men had been invited to his resurrection? Wouldn't it have been an awesome thing if they had been included in that list of names that went to the upper room? They brought him the first symbology of his purpose. They're never mentioned again. I like to believe somewhere in the awesome biblical story that there are some wise men rejoicing around the throne today. They kept up with the baby. They may not have followed him, but they never ceased to worship him. Went back to their own country. Who knows? Who knows that Simon the Cyrene was not one of those wise men or even one of those wise men's child that was picked out of the crowd randomly to come bear his cross. Could it be that the Holy Ghost was saying, your dad brought the myrrh, you can carry the cross. 
Who knows? Who knows? It's not just a Christmas time for Pastor. Brother Tom, if you'll share this message with me this morning, and he does. It's not just Christmas time for me. It's every day. I acknowledge his royalty. I acknowledge his divinity. But I acknowledge his sacrifice. I don't bring him myrrh, Brother James, to rub his face in his death, nor to grieve his parents, his earthly parents. But I bring him myrrh as a token of worship and affection because he died for me. Without it, I wouldn't be here today. If you'll stand with me this morning, the wise men worshiped that baby at age two. They worshiped a two-year-old, the most mature, the most wise, worshiping the epitome of immaturity and childishness. you listen to me this morning. If you don't hear anything else, you listen. They worshiped based on their God-given revelation of him. They didn't bring him gifts that were relevant to them, but they brought him gifts relevant to him. The epitome, worship. They worshiped the one who was king, the one who was priest, and the one who would be a sacrifice. Today we may not bring literal gifts to him, but we can bring to him the rest of our life, making him the true king of our life. We bypass Herod. Just keep on going past Herod. There's another king. And everything we do is based on his will and his purpose for us. We can bring to him our treasures, meaning that our lives are not going to be based on things that make us happy, but we're going to live our lives based on things that make Him happy. We can bring our love, our, our love for Him, our love for ourselves, and our love for others. We can bring Him our faith that is our total belief system. We can bring Him our life, our family, finances, even our children. We can bring Him our faith in the future which is retirement, traveling, hobbies, health, and even the rapture or even death. We can bring him our faith in heaven itself. So yes, when we come to Jesus, we leave sin and worldliness behind. We say goodbye to sinful habits and addictions. This shows us and Jesus really how much we love him and want to please him. It's worship. It's a form of worship. We worship with the shepherds when we leave our sinful past behind. 
and begin to do his will for our lives. We bring him gifts of faith and obedience, showing that we trust him and submit our lives to him. All of our desires, hopes, and dreams are now in his hands, and we serve him and worship him, not just on Christmas Day as we celebrate his birth, but every day of our lives. Robertson McQuilkin former president of Columbia International University of Columbia, South Carolina, wrote this testimony, and I conclude with this. Life was heavy on me, he said. My dearest friend and intimate companion, my delightful wife, Merle, was slipping away one painful loss at a time as Alzheimer's disease ravaged her brain. Just as the full impact of what was happening to us hit home, the life of Bob, our eldest son, was snuffed out in a diving accident. Two years later, to care for Muriel, I left my life work at its peak. I was numb, bitter, angry. Why should I be? It's the way life is. Life in a broken world. But the passion and my love for God had evaporated, leaving a residue of resignation where once had been vibrant faith. I knew that I was in deep trouble and did the only thing I knew to do. I went away to a mountain hideaway for prayer and fasting. It took about 24 hours to shake free of preoccupation with my own wounds and to focus on the excellencies of God. As I did, slowly love began to be rekindled. And with love came joy. And he said, I wrote God a love letter, naming 41 of his marvelous gifts to me, spotlighting 11 of his grandest acts in history and exalting in 10 of his characteristics that exceed my imagination. Surely he enjoyed my gratitude. Who doesn't appreciate gratitude? But he went on to say, but I discovered something else. Something else happened to me. I call it the reflex action of thanksgiving. My love flamed up from the dying embers and my spirit soared. I have discovered that ingratitude, ingratitude impoverishes, but that a heavy heart lifts on wings of praise and worship. So as the old Christmas carol goes, Oh, come, let us adore him. Is there people here today, there's some things you could leave behind. Maybe an unforgiving spirit, maybe bitterness, maybe hatred and hurt and resentfulness. Maybe you could leave that behind and come with sacrifice, worship and praise. Let's gather around the front for a few moments as Casey leads us in worship. Would you come this morning? Say, God, I have something to bring. God, I have something I want to bring to you today. I'm bringing you my life, my faith, my trust, my hope. God, I bring to you today my plans. But I'm bringing you gifts of 